Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. A thank you payment. That's what Nicola Sturgeon called it. Yet you say £500, and that is where the story takes a twist. The fact that, you know, power is best served when it is exercised at the lowest level possible. And for me, you know, devolution shouldn't just stop at the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. I would like to see more power devolved to um, local councils across the country because they are closer in terms of decision making than sometimes we are in Edinburgh. I mean, they, they spend a lot of their time, these people that are, you know, they kind of fight over the NEC, do some, spend a lot of time and energy arguing on the internet. And I wonder if they would be doing better as a party <laughs> if they all just shut up for a bit, you know? Um, and for a year, I had to pursue the Scottish government to mitigate the bedroom tax in Scotland when they could have done so quite easily. And it was only when I threatened to bring forward legislation that John Swinney finally conceded Okay, first up we have Good Week, Bad Week. That is a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Uh, Mandy, we're speaking the day after the end of SNP conference, and I think we have quite a straightforward Good Week. That is a Good Week for NHS staff in Scotland after the news that they're going to get a £500 cash gift from the Scottish Government. A thank you payment. That's what Nicola Sturgeon called it. Uh, So that's for Phil all full-time NHS and adult social care workers and um, part-time workers will get a proportionate share of that £500. And yet you say £500 (laughs) and that is where the story takes a twist. Yes, well I think we can say it's good politics. I mean we've come through you know eight, nine months of um, a horrendous pandemic. We've all applauded um, NHS and care care workers and Nicola Sturgeon used her conference speech to say that she would be giving you giving them this thank you payment um she actually said the Scottish government is choosing to do this now from our own resources we're asking nothing of the UK government with one exception there's always a but Liam because we don't control the full tax and benefit system we don't have the power to make this payment tax-free but the Prime Minister, you do. So I'm asking you this. Please allow our health and care heroes to keep every penny of Scotland's thank you to them. Do not take any of it away in tax. So it's good politics from Nicola Sturgeon. She's giving them £500, but she's then telling Boris Johnson that he better not tax them. And this has obviously caused the usual consternation with people saying that she's being disingenuous, that she's causing, um, she's creating grievance where there shouldn't be any, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And she's also announcing new treasury policy from SNP conference. Well, to be fair, I probably would take it out of the politics and go with the Fraser of Allender Institute. So they are saying that um, she's kind of, she's right. And she's wrong, if you like. Um, So under Scotland's fiscal framework, the additional income tax paid by NHS social care workers on their bonuses will flow to the devolved Scottish budget. But she really isn't responsible 
for that particular element because it's about a bonus. So, but the way around all of this, of course, is uh, if you weren't the SNP leader, is not to say to Boris Johnson, you should not take the tax. She could, in fact, just pay them a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although I suppose whatever happens, you're going to have national insurance contributions it should be less but that is whatever happens that's going to go to the uk government isn't it but i think we should get it into some perspective as well it's 500 pounds it 10 pounds potentially 340 pounds if it gets yeah 10 pounds a week well slightly less than that actually um but it's it's quite a classic smp policy actually isn't it it's you know it's quite an obvious like headline grabber yeah that um you know it's a fairly populist move everyone gets the same amount of money and they bypass the councils and it's a gesture and, and and it's a good one. Yeah, well, it's a lot better than getting clapped, I would say. I mean, I would rather have £500. The Fraser Valander make a really uh, important point because they say, look, the reason bonuses are taxed, um, because if they weren't, everyone would want paid in bonuses rather than a regular pay. Mm, yeah. So making an exception to the rule once opens the possibility of endless future lobbying for tax-exempt bonuses, which really isn't something any government should be keen to encourage. No. And actually, there were, there were predictions this sort of thing would happen back at the Smith Commission, wasn't there? You know, when they, when yeah. they devolved income tax and kept national insurance separate. Income tax has mm. always been a kind of clunky lever for this sort of thing. Yeah. Anyway, don't be asking me for a bonus, Liam. A, bon- a Christmas bonus? For a Christmas bonus for old Liam? <laughs> Let old Liam wet his beak. A Brucey bonus. Yeah. I, I don't know. I was expecting that, to be honest. Anyway, do you know what? The bottom line is, good week. So it's £500 that um, NHS NHS staff would not have been getting. Yes, and also great for column inches. So that's also a good week. People can, <laughs> Very good for column people inches. People can speculate wildly over who's to blame and whether this is grievance, whatever it was. Take the batteries <laughs> out of the grievance machine. That was the as long as you're not paid £500 per column because it kind of just cancels it all oh, out. That's true, yeah. Um, yeah, who gets paid five hundred pounds for a column I, I, these I days? I think historically is my understanding. I don't think anyone. <laughs> I've heard of Very legends historic. like that. Actually, Boris Johnson. I think he got paid about twenty five thousand pounds per column. That's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. So what about bad week? Um, bad week. I mean, this is a bit of a tongue in cheek one, really. Is it's a bad week I've got here for Richard Leonard, and that's after a, a fairly public dispute with a homeless charity on Twitter. Um, I don't know if you saw this. <laughs> yes, indeed, I got involved. Yeah. Um, so he he posted a picture of um of a huge queue of people waiting to access a soup kitchen, and the the charity took exception to it and felt that he was using them for political purposes. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I thought it was um quite a bizarre response from the charity, but we'll go on to that in a minute. So huge queue of homeless people in Glasgow at Central Station queuing on a Friday night to get free soup. It's an appalling picture for 21st century Scotland and a Labour leader quite rightly should comment on the fact that that is just an incredible scene and shouldn't be happening. Mm. And of course, because he's the Scottish Labour leader, he's asking the question of the SNP. What are they doing about it? Mm -hmm. The charity that he wasn't the only Labour politician. Neil Finlay did and so did Cara Hilton and, and probably many others. The charity responded by with quite an angry tweet back to Richard Leonard saying that he hadn't um, 
mentioned them, he hadn't met with them, he hadn't talked to them, and he was using their image for political gain. And I mean, I suppose from my point of view, Liam, is if you can't use a picture of people standing in the cold waiting for free soup for political gain, then what's it all about being a Scottish Labour leader? Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think they could have handled it better probably and been in touch to say, listen, we're taking your picture and we're sending it to all our MSPs to post simultaneously. I think that was the, the I spoke to Colin from the charity yesterday and I mean, that was his feeling basically was that it just felt a little bit orchestrated to him. I don't think he really mm-hmm. thought it through particularly because I should add, he's actually delighted with the, the response to the whole thing and he's got no problem with Richard Leonard. He's gone, he's, he's going to go out and visit and they're going to show him the soup kitchen and things. But I mean, as it was, they, they raised three grand in donations just from that tweet the response and you know got a huge amount of publicity as well so actually they're they're quite happy with the outcome um they're not angry with richard leonard about this but it certainly raised the profile i mean i i just hope um for richard leonard's sake he doesn't then have his picture taken with people getting free soup because i then got into a bit of a uh, a conversation with the MP, the SNP MP John Nicholson, um, who responded to me about it, saying that he thought it was ghastly politics as well from Richard Leonard. Um, so I asked him what he thought as an SNP MP, given his party's in power in Scotland, what he would think of the fact that people are having to queue for free soup. Um, And he responded quite rightly by saying that he doesn't like that kind of thing, that he doesn't like pictures of politicians in food banks. So I sent him one of Nicola Sturgeon at a food bank. Mm. And what happened? (laughs) Well, he then got into a discussion with me about whether there was context to that. Had she invited the press to see her in a food bank? Well, in fact, the pictures had appeared on the Scottish government's Flickr site. I mean, I think it's a it's a really hard um, position for politicians. Poverty exists. Do you go along out of concern and highlight the issues of food banks and soup kitchens, etc.? But when you're also in government in the country where that's happening, do you take on any of the responsibility? Mm. Yeah, it's an inherently political thing, isn't it? I mean, you can't talk about poverty without bringing politics into it. No, and I mean, we're doing a huge amount in the next magazine around poverty, mm. um, which is why, obviously, you're going through to speak to um, the charity involved. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go and see them on Friday, but they, although I should add that it's not to reconcile myself with them after insulting them on Twitter, so that's quite good. I'll probably be welcome. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> let's see some nice pictures of you there, Liam. <laughs> yeah. Don't use it for political gain, though, please. I, I do nothing for political gain. I do everything for everyone else, and I get no thanks whatsoever. No £500 for me either, by the way, I note. Yeah. I think, you know, the problem is it, Richard really, it isn't just a bad week for Richard, is it? I mean, it's been just a bad time since he became leader. And uh, I guess as we go forward towards the election, it's just increasing. Um, we heard this week that Jenny Mara was going to stand down at the next election, which I think everybody was quite shocked at. Um, she, I remember when Jenny was elected for the first time into the Scottish Parliament and everybody was tipping her as the next leader. Mm. And I think she's had quite a bruising time, particularly around the whole GRA reform issue and um, anything that she has said about retention of sex-based rights. Um, But also she's got a young family. She's had two children while she's been in the Parliament. And it feels like this is yet another young mum leaving the Parliament, which feels not a good progressive move. No, and it's just you, you look at the Scottish Labour Party and you think who's going to come in there, you know, who's going to step in and 
I, know, I wouldn't say that Jerry Maher is a particularly well-known face in Scot, you know, across Scotland in terms of political figures. But at the same time, who do they have? And you know, like when Jackson Carlos did down, I thought, well, I don't know what Douglas Ross is going to do here. It's going to be particularly different in terms of you know up in the his profile. But he did seem to manage it. So you do wonder if someone else coming in probably could get more attention than Richard Leonard currently is. Well, I suppose, interestingly, um, Jenny Mara's brother, Michael Mara, who's going to, he's now said that he is hoping to stand at, as number one on the Scottish Labour list for the Parliament next time around. So basically replacing Jenny with Michael. Um, he's seen as um, a very good, respectable figure. He's a councillor in Dundee. Um he would appeal to the moderates, I guess, in the party, if that's how you can distinguish things. But I just I guess for Richard, it's just been it's been a hard slog. He's not been able to get his profile up. There's been constant um conflict internally. Um he's just recently reappointed Anna Sarwa to the front bench. So if you remember, he sacked Anna Sarwa from the front bench. He's now back in. And actually, for this podcast, I've just done an interview with Jackie Bailey, who's the deputy leader of Scottish Labour. He also kicked her out of the front bench. And that was one of the questions that I started with with her. I mean, how can you give the perception of cohesion in a party when your deputy leader was kicked out of the front bench position by the current leader? So we're going to listen to that now. Jackie, I've just listened to Jacob Rees-Mogg basically saying that the last Labour government um, made so many constitutional blend uh, blunders that they've weakened Westminster just um, terribly and saying that they've taken a wrecking ball, basically, to to the constitution. You know, this on the back of what Boris Johnson said about devolution being Blair's biggest mistake. Are they just helping the SNP? Um, it- I'll tell you one thing, I wouldn't take um, with anything other than a pinch of salt anything that Boris Johnson or indeed Jacob Rees-Mogg would say. Um, The Tories have always been opposed to devolution. I remember back when there was the Constitutional Convention and they stood apart from it, as indeed did the SNP at the time, um, joining later. So Labour has always been the party of devolution, and I am very proud we delivered both the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, um, because for me it was it was a natural sense of the order of things. The fact that you know power is best served when it is exercised at the lowest level possible. And for me, you know, devolution shouldn't just stop at the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. I would like to see more power devolved to um, local councils across the country because they are closer in terms of decision making than sometimes we are in Edinburgh. So, um, yes, I take with a pinch of salt what Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson have said. But, you know, devolution is something that for the past 20 years, I think, has been successful. Of course, the parliament and governments will have got things wrong, but I think we've learned pretty quickly. And I always remember people saying to me, don't don't judge the parliament just now, maybe wait for about 50 years, and then it will become a settled institution. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be around for 50 years, so I hope it happens much sooner than that. And indeed it has, you know, in 20 years, the parliament has become very much part of life in Scotland and love us or loathe us. I think people now look to the parliament as well as, you know, to Westminster for um, national 
particularly international issues, but they look to the Scottish Parliament to have a view on what happens to them in their communities in their everyday life. So I think devolution has been a success, but the question is where does the journey go from here? I mean, clearly for Boris Johnson, it was more about saying devolution may be okay, but what he doesn't like is the SNP being in power. I mean, presumably you share that sentiment. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it would always be better if Labour were in power. But, you know, I respect the fact that that in the past people have voted for the SNP, they've put them into government, um, and it is up to us in the opposition to hold them to account. You know, but I think Boris Johnson has some cheek, if I might say so, um, in offering an opinion about devolution when he has been an arch critic of it um, in the past and, and no doubt that's his view in the future. I think it causes huge problems for the Conservative Party in Scotland who have tried to fashion themselves in a different way um, to be constantly pulled down by Boris Johnson and all his pronouncements. And you're beginning to see that in the polls because they are beginning to, despite a new leader, um, decline in the polls in a way that I think is is they would regard as quite unfortunate. But therein I see an opportunity for Labour. Interestingly, um, we had James Mitchell on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that really the only hope for the Tories to improve their position in Scotland would be for people to vote Labour. Um, because they've basically mopped up all the unionist votes they can, um, but but you know they're hardly likely to campaign for Labour to do better. No, and I don't I don't accept that you know by Labour doing better we help the Tories. I mean to be honest with you, I think everything these days is seen through a constitutional frame, um, and I understand why that is. But you know at a time where the country is really in crisis in a way that I've not seen in my lifetime, where we are facing not just a public health crisis, um, but a crisis in the recovery of the NHS as we move forward, but also a huge economic crisis that is costing jobs in my communities, um, is costing businesses, um, many of them not sure whether they will survive into 2021. that is the only thing that should be exercising our minds, to be honest with you. And I, I tend to approach the 2021 elections, but also um, the budget that's coming up with that very firmly fixed in my mind. Because unless we get the country back on its feet, unless government provides the right kind of stimulus um, for businesses to recover um, and for jobs to, to be created again, we are going to be struggling for quite a few years to come. I mean, my my party has been clear, Labour has been clear. We do not believe that that now is particularly the right time to have another referendum on independence. The priority has to be the recovery of the country and the recovery of jobs for people in in families in my communities across the, the area. So I guess we are where we are. And the polls are showing that despite all of that that you're saying, the SNP look likely to win the next election, if not get another majority. So let's talk about what has happened to Labour. Um, And I guess we, you know, we could talk about the eight different leaders. We could talk about whether or not they were right on the referendum first time around. But you've been there right from the very beginning, Jackie. What, what, What are your reflections on it? 
Well, we don't have long enough for me to give you all the reasons I think that, that we're in the position we are. Um, suffice to say that, that the moment for me, I think, was post the referendum in 2014. And we, ca- we made the mistake of carrying on as if it was back to business as usual. And clearly something had changed in the country. And despite the fact that um, the no side won and we wanted to remain as part of the United Kingdom, and that was very much the settled view of people in Scotland at that point in time, um, I think there was a desire to see change. And that's what the 2014 referendum told me. Not necessarily um, the, the, the full change of becoming independent, but actually wanting more power exercised in Scotland, more responsibility um, actually given to Scotland. Um, and we failed to reflect that properly. Um, granted, there was the Smith Commission and that did deliver more powers, but we went back to business as normal. And I think people felt um, that, that we ignored them. And you know, any political party ignores the electorate at their peril. And we became or certainly appeared to be out of touch with what they were thinking. Now, I'm very clear, you know, um, as somebody as the only Labour MSP to hold on to their constituency seat um, continuously since 1999, um, I make a point of listening to my constituents very carefully indeed. And, you know, they, they care about jobs, they care about the health service, they care about the economy, they care about, you know, opportunities for their children. Um, And Labour just got lost. We didn't speak in their language. We didn't speak about the future. We spoke about the past. Um, And, you know, we, we were out of touch with people. We need to turn that around. And I am confident that that we will do so. Let me let me just make make an obvious point, you know, at the last general election, Jeremy Corbyn was not popular on the doorsteps in my area. Um, There is a different view now about Keir Starmer. Um, People are prepared to give him a hearing. He's a new leader. He has set out early on to say what the party is about. Um, And his polling in Scotland is actually good. I think people are keen to give him a hearing and keen to understand what he will offer and what Labour will offer going forward. So that's a real opportunity for us that we should capitalise on. Um, but again, I'm, I'm clear, we need to listen to people, we need to reflect their concerns, and they need to be clear that we're doing so. I'm going to go back a little bit further. But first of all, just to pick up on that point, Jackie, I mean, it's Richard Leonard, though, that's going to be the leader that takes you into that party, not into that election, not Keir Starmer. Well, it's, it's, it's not just about one leader. I mean, you know that we are a party of many talents, um, I would argue. And actually, it's not just the leader, it's the team roundabout. But for me at this point in time, when I look at the economic crisis that, that is about to be visited on us, um, almost like a tsunami of, of job losses as well, um, that there is a need for people to focus on those things that matter most. Um, Labour have something to offer in that space. We have always been the party of jobs and work. Um, We have good ideas on job creation schemes, job guarantee schemes for young people, um, all of that. And, And actually businesses just now are being let down by a lack of support and Labour is in that territory arguing about what needs to happen to ensure that businesses survive and grow as we come out of the pandemic. 
I mean, I guess one of the things that people will say is that Labour tends to fight among itself all the time, and that's not something that you want to portray when you're going into an election. But as as deputy leader of a party that's led by a leader that sacked you from the front bench, how do you work together cohesively? Well, you see, I'm a very forgiving person. <laughs> and, you know, over the years, people fall in and out with each other. At the end of the day, um, there is much more that, that unites us than divides us. Um, and we care about making sure that Scotland as a country can thrive and prosper. Um, so I will let nothing stand in my way of doing that, not just for my constituency, but now indeed for um, constituencies and communities across Scotland, because we face the toughest of times ahead. Um, we need to come through that, and we need to come through that in a united way that actually delivers for people, and nothing is more important. And can you and Richard stand together as a united front? Absolutely. I mean, I have no problem doing that, you know, and I will work with politicians from different parties um, if we are agreed on what our objectives are. Um, I, the wonderful thing about Scotland, and, and people you know, used to use it almost as, as a negative, but I like Scotland because it's small, because we know each other, because we can reach out to each other, take risks, get things wrong, but yet put them right quickly. And we can do so sometimes, I hope, out with the usual kind of political rivalries um, and actually reach across that political divide to do things better in the future. There was a particular commentator that said to me that Richard um, was the very definition of an egoist because he was prepared to go into this election knowing that he would lose it, but not preparing to stand aside. Well, you know, I mean, you, you can listen to your commentators, but, but let me tell you that, you know, I am confident that what we will have going into the election is an attractive programme we can put to people, um, an array of candidates with a lot of different talents and contributions to make. And at the end of the day, it will be for the Scottish people to judge. But I just think in the context of the crisis that we face, it is time for much more serious, much more thoughtful politics than, than we've had previously. And Labour wants to step up to the plate and play their part in offering just that. So I keep reminding you how long you've been in the Parliament. I know, but, I started young. Can I just say that? <laughs> I know, we both are. Um, but when you look back and you think, you, you know, the, both of us can look back at the 2007 election and there was a feeling that the SNP had won that election, but it probably wouldn't last very long. I, I, I think there was a feeling among Labour members at the time that actually it might not go the full term. Do you think there was an there was also at that point, as long ago as that, that Labour just hadn't got to grips with what the SNP were doing. Yes, I think I think we were complacent, and I think um, the attitude that somehow we deserve to be back in without having earned it was exactly the wrong place for us to be. And yes, I remember people saying, "Oh, don't worry, we'll be back in. Don't worry, you know, they'll they'll fall apart." Now, what was interesting was it was a minority government. Um, and it forced the government to do two things. One, to work with other people to get their legislation through. Um, but two, it, it made them actually quite cautious about what they did. So they didn't overtly rock the boat. Um, there was nothing hugely controversial because they required to work um, in a consensual basis with other parties to get their legislation through. 
And the other thing I've always said is it's not just the laws we pass that matter. It's the money we spend, how we spend that money, what our priorities are for local services um, and all of that. So whether it's education, the NHS, local government. Um, so it gave them an opportunity to actually demonstrate that without necessarily worrying about passing much contentious legislation. In fact, I think if my memory serves me right, that there are actually very few bills that, that have been passed by the SNP, relatively speaking, compared to the early days of a Labour and Lib Dem um, coalition government. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting because they used the fact that they were a minority um, to actually be relatively stable as a government, not do anything particularly exciting, um, but just prove that they were quite competent. Mm -hmm. And at that time as well, or just a, a year or so after, Wendy's famous bring it on comment. Do you reflect back on that as a supporter very much of Wendy at that time, that had it been brung on and a referendum had been held at a time that was not of the SNP's choosing, that we might be sitting in a different political world? I think you're right. And, you know, let me let me declare my interest here. Wendy Alexander continues to be a friend. Um, but when I reflect on that moment, um, I think she was absolutely right. It was about calling out the SNP, actually trying to decide whether um, this was something that, that people wanted. Um, and her timing would have been impeccable. I think at that point in time, we would have won a referendum that would have seen us um, remain in the United Kingdom, and it would have put this to bed for quite some time, not just in terms of the referendum, but perhaps even um, the future of the SNP as a government. So for me, that, that was a turning point. It was a mistake that we didn't do that. Um, and since then, we've seen the SNP in government ever since. But I mean, obviously, you're not a spectator to this, Jackie, you're, you're part of it. I mean, so when you look back on that, and that was a very bruising time for Wendy, why didn't it happen? Why didn't she get the support? Well, I, I think, you know, that's something you would need to ask her, to be honest with you. Um, but at the time, I think there was a feeling coming from elsewhere that um, it the timing wasn't right to actually do that. Um, it, if it was left as a decision that we were making in Scotland, then I think we would have gone for it. I think she was right. And with the benefit of hindsight, I hope other people recognise that too. Do you think Gordon Brown was wrong? Well, I'm not saying that. I don't know who was involved in the decision making. Um, you credit me with more influence than I actually had. But uh, you'd need to invite him onto your pod podcast and ask him that question. How did it feel? Um, so, I mean, you've been in various positions within the party at the at leadership roles. How has it felt from 2007 then into 2011, where it, you know that majority happened for a start, and then onwards? I just, I wonder if it feels as if a dam has burst and you can't do anything. Um, it's been deeply frustrating, and you you were right. I mean, we've had several leaders in that that period, um, and each has brought their own different you know, stamp to to the party. Um, but it has felt incredibly kind of frustrating because I know that people in my community, people in other communities across Scotland, um, actually need a party like the Labour Party standing up 
for their values, but actually doing things in their communities that matter to them. So, you know, the one thing I'm particularly proud of that I think is just going the wrong way just now is our efforts in tackling child poverty. Mm -hmm. We had a position where um, at least half of the children in Scotland were lifted out of poverty by a Labour government, not just at a Scottish level, but also working in partnership with the Labour government at the UK level. We prioritised tackling poverty, providing opportunities for young people and children in particular, um, and we were successful in doing so. We're now going the wrong way on a whole number of measures, whether it's child poverty, whether it's people sleeping rough, you know, whether it's fuel poverty, these are basic fundamentals in what is otherwise quite an affluent country that we should not be putting generations of young people through. You know, we should be providing them with opportunity for the future, and we're just not doing that. And this kind of persistent problem with poverty in our communities has to be something that is a priority and is tackled. That's something that Labour did. It's something that Labour would prioritise because, one, it's not just good for those children and those families. It's good for the community. It's good for our economy, too, if people are productive. So how then does it feel when you see Nicola Sturgeon criticising the levels of poverty in Scotland and can put all the blame to Westminster? Well, it's deeply frustrating, and I don't think she can put all the blame to Westminster. Um, There is much that the Scottish government can do. And this is the thing that really irritates me. You know, I will be the first to blame Boris Johnson for, you know, whatever he's doing, if I think it's wrong. There is absolutely no love lost there. But what frustrates me is when we have the power to do more, we're not using that power. Now, you know, I can illustrate that. I mean, you, you, you and I go back long enough to remember the infamous bedroom tax. Um, And for a year, I had to pursue the Scottish government to mitigate the bedroom tax in Scotland when they could have done so quite easily. Here was a truly horrendous conservative policy being inflicted in Scotland, and we had the power to do something about it. And it was only when I threatened to bring forward legislation that John Swinney finally conceded and put some money on the table. Now, it was only something like £35 million. It is a drop in the ocean to secure the kind of dignity for local communities that were faced with being punished for having an extra bedroom, um, you know, and that, that, that was just simply wrong. That's something I expect the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government to do something about. That was what devolution was all about taking different decisions. But the failure to do so um, until we forced them a year later, I thought was was just awful. And I don't understand how you can be, you know, a politician in the SNP government and not strain every sinew to try and protect people in your local communities. Why do you think they didn't do that at that point? I mean, we've had the same discussions, if you like, about the so-called rape clause. Um, But can they mitigate everything that they see? Or do you think they also pulled back on that because you'd suggested it? Well, I mean, some people do say that I'm like a red rag to a bull. I'm sure that's not true at all. You know, they, they need to get beyond the kind of, you know, daft playground politics of, well, if Jackie Bailey suggests it, it must be a bad thing, to understanding what it is 
that actually impacts the most on communities. And I accept you probably can't mitigate everything. But there was a very telling comment made by John Swinney at the time that he didn't want to let Westminster off the hook. Well, I have to say, he was putting thousands upon thousands of people, you know, in some of our poorest communities on the hook in order to make that political point. Now, you know, I'm sorry, if you have the power to do something that protects some of the poorest and most vulnerable in your area, then, you know, shame on you for not doing so. So I think this was about politics. I, I'm very conscious, you know, as I look around that, it's very easy for politicians to point the finger and blame somebody else. So let's blame Westminster or let's blame local councils or, you know, let's blame people for not following COVID rules, as, as I've heard increasingly from some politicians. Do you know, it is about assuming the responsibility you have as government, the power you have for positive change and doing something with it. Doing nothing is not acceptable. Jackie, why do they continue? to get elected in? I don't know, you know, it's, it's painful for me. I think I think because, you know, they, they alight on a few issues that have resonance with people um, and, you know, people like what they hear. And, and I accept that. I mean, I'm not going to argue with the polls or with the electorate. Um, the electorate is always right. Um, even though I might want them to do a different thing. But but I do sometimes think we we need, as an opposition, to expose some of the SNP's record in government much better than we have done. Pre-COVID, um, you know, their, their education record, which they said they should be judged by, was pretty woeful. Um, you know, I have constituents waiting pre-COVID um, up to a year for basic orthopedic operations. Now they're going to wait anything from two to three years. Um, so, you know, we need to get back to prioritising what's going to make the most difference to people. That has to be the top of the agenda and everybody's focus. When you look at some of the things, though, that Labour has pushed, which have, have, they've had great successes in, things like the period poverty bill, um, exposing some of the issues around care homes, which I'm sure we'll come on to at, at a later point, uh, transvaginal mesh issues. These are kind of bread and butter Labour issues. And I'm still wondering why, when you have these successes, you're not seeing that reflected in the polls. I know. Um, I, and nothing is more frustrating for me because you, you're absolutely right. If you take, as one example, um, the period poverty bill that was voted on in Parliament, this was brought in by Monica Lennon, um, who's Labour's health spokesperson. She's worked hard over the years on, on making that happen. And in fact, you know, history will show that at the first stage of the bill, um, the SNP government opposed it. Now, I am delighted, you know, so delighted that they changed their mind and decided to support the bill and to work with Monica Lennon on achieving that. Now, that was a world first. Um, and, you know, it matters that, um, one, it was produced by a Labour member, but it matters that the Parliament decided that they would support this and vote for this. Um, so, yeah, that's an example of... of you know, positively Labour making a difference to women and girls across Scotland and actually probably leading the way in the world as others will now follow. Um, 
I don't know why that doesn't have more resonance than 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 it should do, um, but we need to remind people that actually even Labour in opposition is actually making the waves and, and influencing um, how the government and the parliament react. How did it feel for you becoming coming behind the Tories in a devolved parliament? It was truly terrible. Um, physically, moving you know, from one side of the chamber to the other, I didn't think would affect me, but but it was awful. Um, and you know, Labour in third place is not where I want us to be, and not where I would like us to be come the election in May 2021. Um, there is an issue about um, whether the SNP have a majority or not, and there are people who would want to deny them that majority. But again. What I care about most is what we're going to do to get the country back on its feet. And I think Labour have much more to offer um, than the Tories for, for sure, but also the SNP in terms of our thinking about what needs to happen, both for jobs, both for the NHS recovery, um, but so that the country as a whole thrives and recovers from the devastation of the pandemic. I remember Jim Murphy saying to me, um, so it must have been, what, 2015, that when you went knocking round doors, people didn't know what Labour stood for. They couldn't answer that question. Do you think they could answer that now? Yes, I think I think they could, because Labour is very much on the side of people. Our values are about, um, you know, cooperation, social justice, um, providing opportunities for people. We need to find a language that communicates that to people. Um, and I was very conscious, you know, Jim, Jim at the time was right. I was very conscious even in the last general election that we had a manifesto that was packed with a plethora of good things and nobody knew what our priorities were, nobody knew what we stood for um, and we need to avoid that happening this time round. So we need a very clear message, a clear narrative about what Labour's all about and actually what we would bring to the table um, if we were um, voted for. The more Labour MSPs there are, the better to bring to the table the kind of issues that people care about. So again, you know, the point of repeating it, um, it is about how we get recovery in the country, particularly for the economy and jobs and for the NHS. I mean, people frequently say, whether this is true or not, that um, you could put a cigarette paper between you and the, the uh, SNP if it weren't for independence. Do you think that's true? Um, no, I don't, right? Of course, there is a difference of opinion on independence. But there's actually a difference of opinion on how um, progressive they're prepared to be. You know, there are times where um, I am so disappointed at the response because it's timid. Um, it actually doesn't resolve the problem. And therefore, I think that's wrong. I think we would do far more. Um, take rough sleeping as one example. Um, we all but eradicated rough sleeping in Scotland. Um, the SNP took their eye off the ball. Um, and that is a matter of great regret. And we started to see increasingly people on the streets of Scotland sleeping rough. Now, you know, for any civilised progressive society, that just isn't good enough. Um, and I don't want to see ministers, um, you know, raising funds by sleeping out in the streets once a year. I want to see them use the power and the funds of government to actually change that. And the one thing that COVID has taught us is, wow, 
Isn't it amazing that suddenly they're able to do that? They take people off the streets in a way they could have done before, um, but it's taken COVID to have them do that. And I don't want us to go back to that lack of action, um, almost dismissal of people that really require our help. Now, again, I'm going to just remind you again of how long you've been in that parliament, but you've this had... Becoming a <laughs> this is becoming a really bad theme. <laughs> well, I said, I've been there too. So, But when you look at Nicola Sturgeon and John Swinney, and we've seen John Swinney, you know, this week again, face well, he will be facing a vote of no confidence around the, um, the legal advice that went ahead of the judicial review around the salmon harassment complaints. Do you recognise those two people now as the people that you remember back in 99 and going forward? Um, yes, because they were both they both came into the parliament at the same time as me. Um, I have to say that, that Nicola probably back then was was less confident than, than Nicola is now. Um, but they were both, you know, considerable figures in the opposition, and I would never take that away from them. Um, I suppose the, the responsibility I feel, and I would hope that they feel, is that as original kind of uh, people elected in 1999, I feel a degree of responsibility to the parliament as an institution. Um, and I'm very conscious that there will be, there's been huge degrees of churn, you know, lots of new members coming in, older members retiring, people losing their seats. This time round, you know, a number of the SNP backbench being refreshed, there'll be new people in. Um, so that collective memory is starting to go and it matters. So I have been beyond disappointed um, in relation to the Salmond inquiry that, that the committee is, is conducting, that both Nicola Sturgeon, but in particular John Swinney, seems to be ignoring Parliament, disrespecting Parliament and disrespecting the committee. Um, and I take very much, whatever, whatever has gone on, whoever the players are, um, I think we need to have respect for the parliament and regard for the parliament as an institution. They're not displaying that just now, and that's deeply disappointing. Can you see any excuse for why they are refusing to cooperate? Um, look, I, I understand the principle of legal privilege. I understand why they don't want to you know, breach any law officer conventions. I was in that dim and distant past that you remind me of, um, a minister too. I get all of that. But there was never an occasion where Parliament voted for something and we ignored it as a government. Never an occasion that I can recall. So, you know, I said to John Swinney in the chamber last week um, that actually there have now been two successive votes in Parliament demanding that the legal advice is provided. And we have other examples where they've provided legal advice before, whether it's the UK Bloods Inquiry, the Child Abuse Inquiry, I mean, even, goodness me, a Trams Inquiry, um, where legal advice has been provided. Um, he can do it if he chooses to do so. And the thing for me that I always try and remind myself is that right at the heart of this are two women who complained um, those two women have never had closure. Um, the process was never concluded. Um, the, the policy remains unchanged despite the judicial review. And my understanding is the policy has never been used since, despite the fact 
that there are more complaints now of harassment and bullying under Nicola Sturgeon's administration than there were under Alex Salmon's. Um, so we need to get to the bottom of this, not least for those two women, but actually for women in the future who just now clearly don't want to come forward and complain and just sit quietly and suffer. And that's not acceptable for Scottish government, civil servants to have to, you know, put up with that kind of behaviour without there being a robust policy. So all the committee are trying to do, you know, despite all the kind of noise in the background, is carry out the remit given to us by Parliament, including the SNP, is to understand what went wrong, why it went wrong, and how we can put it right for the future. And for the government to obstruct us at every turn um, is beyond disappointing. Beyond disappointing. How did you feel about the FDA, the Civil Servants Union, criticising you, though, uh, not just you, all the committee members, for the way you were treating the civil servants? Did you think that was justified? I mean, the, the FDA is a civil service trade union. I would expect them to stand up for their members, but, but these are members in the very highest echelons of the civil service. This is the permanent secretary, you know, director generals and senior managers. Um, I expect them when they come before a committee to know their stuff. I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable. Um, these are key players in what happened. Um, they are the ones providing the written evidence um, that, that we are scrutinising, they are the ones who were there at the time. I expect them to remember what happened. I expect them to cooperate with the committee. And I have to say, it's been hugely difficult to get them to do so. I have been criticised for, for suggesting that people had selective amnesia. Well, I just invite you to look at what's gone on in the committee and you reach your own conclusion about that. Um, so, you know, I have the greatest regard for civil servants. But I have to tell you, um, I am so far really, again, disappointed by what's gone on at the committee. Um, and I think it is disrespectful of Parliament. So if the FDA want to criticise, that absolutely is their right. But I have a job to do, which is to get beyond the obstruction, to try and arrive at the truth, so we don't end up in this position again. I think for the general public, this is quite uh, an eye-opener, if you like, into some of the most powerful people in our country, and it's fairly unedifying. Um, it is, and, and you know, as I said in Parliament the other day, I'm, I'm genuinely not a great believer in conspiracy theories, but the more the Scottish government deny us an opportunity to consider the evidence, you know, the more they kind of resist, um, whether it's through written evidence or witnesses, the more it just looks like they've got something to hide. Now, you know, it, John Swinney it says, I've given them thousands of pages of evidence, and, and indeed so. But most of it is is not particularly useful. In fact, there's one document that, that I love that's about 20 pages long um, that is just white sheets of paper because they've redacted everything, you know. So, so um, the evidence doesn't say that the government is cooperating. And that that's just wrong. And I think general public are beginning to understand that actually secrecy lies at the heart of how this government operates. Um, you don't need to just look at the committee. If you look at freedom of information requests and how they were treated and how they're still treated, where information that should be available to the public is denied. 
um, and you need to go through all sorts of hoops to get it. We need much more open and transparent government. Um, I think people would respect it more if it was like that. But I have never met such a government that's so, you know, proficient at being secretive in all of their work. How difficult has this committee been for you when you think back to all the things that you've dealt with, including when you were in government? Um, It's really frustrating. Um, You know, parliamentarians are there to do a job. We are there to test the arguments, to explore what happened and to move on. Um, The fact that we're not getting the information to be able to do this is incredibly frustrating, but it's actually making me angry now because I respect the institution um, and I respect Parliament and I think the people that elected us to put us there expect us to do a job. Um, and we are being thwarted in, in doing so. Now, I have to say, you know, they, they reckon without the determination of members of the committee, um, we are intent to get to the truth of this. And the reason we do so is something I said earlier. It is appalling that civil servants in their day-to-day work are subject to any kind of harassment or bullying. The fact that there were more now than there were at the time that the policy was put in place um, is is a matter of of fact, but it's depressing. Um, And the fact that nobody has used the complaints procedure um, since, because it's it's clearly dysfunctional, it's not right, um, must worry us. We need to be in a position that... uh, whether you're a civil servant, whatever walk of life you're in, that you are not subjected to harassment and bullying at work and that there is something in place that is robust that will defend you as an individual. Um, That's what the committee needs to do. It needs to make sure that the Scottish government, you know, get this right. Now, there are all sorts of people saying, oh, will it bring down Nicola Sturgeon? Will it bring down whoever? I'm not interested in that. And I'm not going to prejudge the outcome of the committee. But I'll tell you, those two women at the centre of this, they've been let down. They deserve a conclusion. um, And, you know, we will do our damnedest to get it for them. I think, um, you know, despite all of that, we're listening to Donald Cameron, who made a really great speech the other day in Parliament about all of this. He also, it felt like a plea almost that when you're watching all of this and you take on board everything you've just said, is it actually cutting through with the public? Um, it, I think at the moment, to be honest, the, the public's focus is on COVID. It's on how do they keep themselves safe? How do they keep their families safe? How do they make sure they've got jobs to go back to? In the case of people running businesses, how do they keep their businesses afloat? Um, You know, people are looking at Christmas and not not being certain whether they can socialise, not just with friends, but actually with close members of the family. Um, And the only blink of light on the horizon is the, the possibility of a vaccine. So, you know, they have a huge amount on their plate. This isn't, you know, nightly news um, because of that. And I think that's why a lot of people aren't engaged with it. I think they also um, perhaps look at this and understand that stuff is being withheld from the committee. Um, But I'm not sure they see much more than politicians, um, particularly in the SNP, 
arguing with each other about what's going on because you know at the heart of this again is is the relationship between the former first minister Alex Salmond and the current first minister Nicola Sturgeon. Right, I'm going to finish on just a perhaps more optimistic note. So, you know, just what are you looking forward to, Jackie, as we come out of this? You mentioned the glimmer of a vaccine. We're all fed up and we've got Christmas coming as well. And perhaps none of us should rush into doing anything silly. But what are you looking forward to? Um, I, I am looking forward to the vaccine. I think, you know, people being able to go back to normal as near normal as possible, um, is something that I really look forward to. Do you know, I get loads of emails from people, um, especially during the pandemic, the, the, the volume of emails has cr- increased exponentially. But it's people kind of saying, look, I haven't seen my grandson um, who lives down in England. You know, I want to get a flight to go, but they're prevented from doing so because they live in a tier four area. Um, I want you know, people to be able to see family, to hug those in in care homes because they've not been able to touch them for the past eight months. You know, that kind of human contact that we value so much that we haven't been able to do um, at a very fundamental level is quite important. So I intend to go around hugging people. There you go, Mandy. Watch out. I'll be coming to hug you soon. Oh, God, John Swinney better watch out. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jackie. That was great. Okay, so it's time for the final part of the show. That is traditionally the rant of the week. And I understand this week, Mandy, is very, very unhappy at political anoraks. Is that right? Am I? I think you are. You're railing against geeks, is what I'd like to believe. (laughs) Have I I led you to believe that? It's quite a dangerous move for the editor of a magazine that's basically aimed at political geeks. Yeah, I I think I'm being misrepresented here (laughs) by you. Um, No, I think, again, this isn't much of a rant. It's just more kind of um, things that go under the radar. There's been a huge disproportionate amount of interest, particularly on social media, about the the SNP's internal workings Mm. um, and the election to its National Executive Committee. And the the results came out quite late last night. And even actually the fact that they came out late became the the focus of speculation about a conspiracy about the voting system. Mm. I mean, I'm quite sure normal people out there, that's people that are not you and me, are not interested uh, particularly in these positions. But the NEC deals with all the kind of rules and regulations in the party and seems to wield quite a lot of power around things like policy, etc. Mm. So this became a bit of a proxy, yet again, because everything seems to be becoming a proxy for this, about those that are trans allies and those that are supporting sex-based rights. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying those in the loosest possible terms because I'm not going to start defining them but it was seen as a battle uh, against the wokerati mm-hmm. and also is, is timing of indie ref 2 coming to this as well some of it seemed to be some of the people that felt that there should be a plan b was part of that kind of division no yeah well one <laughs> so I think you might mean Chris Macalini um who's yeah. for a plan b and he'd put himself forward for the NEC I think the the biggest turnover has been that Mike Russell is now El Presidento um so he's the president of the party uh that might be quite interesting for Indy Ref too um because I 
suspect with Mike Russell standing down from the parliament in May, um, he would take a big high profile role, I would imagine, um, in any India Ref 2 campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stuart Stevenson, our favourite man, has also taken... um, quite a a senior role as national secretary. In fact, a very senior role as national secretary. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there'll be lots of numbers being spouted. Yes. And also national treasurer was held by Colin Beattie for as long as I can ever remember. And that's now he's been replaced by Douglas Chapman, who's an MP. Mm. Uh, Joanna Cherry also is now um, in the NEC and various other, Caroline McAllister becomes the equalities convener, I think. So it was kind of seen as a win, if you like, for those that have been railing against a certain position. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's always it's always called a kind of it's made out that it's this kind of shadowy body. I mean, there's kind of a good reason for that in a way, isn't there? Because it's not particularly important to most people. You know, it's quite hard to find information on the NEC. But then you think, well, it's kind of probably obvious for that. The reason for that, you know. I think for some people within the party, it felt like um, the NEC represented a takeover previously of the party that they recognised. But when they say that, now it will be felt the other way. Um, And it's a discussion about, well, whose party is it anyway? Mm -hmm. Um, It's important, I guess, because the SNP is the party of government. Mm -hmm. And the NEC does play a role in policy formulation. So it is important, but <laughs> whether whether people out there are particularly interested, um, I'd probably hesitate to say that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and normally, of course, we always end this with a politician should do something about that. I'm not sure what politicians can well, do about that. I actually, that. I think they should all do a lot less, if anything. <laughs> I mean, they spend a lot of their time, these people that are, you know, they kind of fight over the NEC, do some, spend a lot of time and energy arguing on the internet. And I wonder yeah. if they would be doing better as a party <laughs> if they all just shut up for a bit, you know? Well, I think the, the issue is that for um, commentators like you and I, looking at all of this, that there's kind of another narrative going on and it is about quite internal disputes Mm -hmm. within a party that is a potentially on the verge of independence uh, about to win the next election there's lots of disquiet about um the the leadership at the top and how insular that is in terms of Nicola Sturgeon um, being the leader of the party and her husband being the chief executive of the party and and any power that the NEC may have around that. So I, it, it is important to us and it could be important to the wider public uh, depending on decisions that get made. And I guess, Liam, that's where we should end it. So they say a week is a long time in politics and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. 